Your business is a reflection of you. Uh, your team is a reflection of you. Your worst employee is a reflection of you. Your growth rate is a reflection of you. So how much time are you spending to actually grow yourself? For many years, you know, I only read books and learned about management and business stuff. And it wasn't until I started spending my time learning about how to be a better human, how to have a better relationship with my wife, how to be a better husband, how to be a better father. It all came together and the company and the people, everyone started to grow as a function. So establish a practice for yourself to grow. Go to a therapist, go to a spiritual coach, go to work groups, do a lot of reading, do things, do things that embarrass you, do things that are different. Welcome to the SaaS Revolution Show, a podcast that brings you insights and tactics from the greatest SaaS minds across the world. The show is brought to you by SaaStock, the conference to turn your SaaS up to 11, returning to Dublin in October 15th to the 17th, 2018. On this week's episode of the SaaS Revolution Show, I take you back to the SaaStock New York stage. David Scott, managing partner of Matrix Partners, is in conversation with Seth Besmertnik, CEO of Conductor, which was acquired this year by WeWork. They chat about the journey of 10 years to get to his exit. Speaking of journeys, nice segue here into our own SaaStock journey. It's only six weeks away from hitting a major milestone, our third annual conference where 3,000 SaaS founders and execs and investors will be joining us in Dublin uh, for a week of SaaS learnings and meetings and growing your SaaS business. There's still a few passes available. Grab yours at SaaStock.com if you haven't yet. It's going to be epic. Now back to the podcast. So when WeWork acquired Conductor, Seth mentioned to WeWork CEO Adam Newman that Adam may have built a billion dollar company very fast, but Seth had made many more mistakes than him. He wasn't exaggerating. Starting Conductor straight out of college, Seth messed up in a myriad of ways, had on many occasions almost given up and closed the company. Almost, but he actually never gave up. In the history of the company, Seth faced every challenge possible. People, churn, leadership, sales execution, etc. It was early on that he understood the unfortunate truth about human existence, entrepreneurial or else. Challenges are an inevitable part of life, and the sooner you prepare yourself mentally for them and accept rather than fight them, the better you will be at addressing them. So he did. And on the way, he built a company earning 30 million in ARR, worthy of an acquisition by WeWork. Could he have done it faster and better? Undoubtedly. But what matters is that when faced with what Baron Horowitz calls the struggle, Sitting in a boardroom about to pull the plug despite the happy faces sitting on the other side of the window, he never did. Seth has learned to play the long game and it paid off for him. Sitting for a chat with David Scott, he now wants to help you do the same. Listen on to learn how he dealt with a very high churn. We made a pivot in the company, a, a, a sort of a, a spiritual pivot, a philosophical, a strategic pivot, a pivot. Just in your heart, do you feel like customers are consistently getting value from your product? And we just got rid of everything. We've changed all of our metrics and all of our focus, not about sales, and we started focusing on customer value. We built new instrumentation so we can see all the things that customers are doing between when they start and when they renew and get the whole team focused on the early indicators. How he made sure customers understand his product. You could make it so your product actually does what your best salesperson does and says it and articulates it and that just becomes more obvious without having the salesperson there then when the salesperson's there, there's more than that person could even do. And ultimately, when your customer is back home at their desk without any of you there, they log into your product, they start using it, you know, they're gonna actually know what to do and feel that warm sort of dopamine from being successful versus like, oh my God, this is overwhelming, I need to call someone and get help. 
what Seth wishes he knew in the early days of Conductor. How many people here uh, feel like their company has a very convicting mission and vision, that, that, and, and more of the mission of what they do? And be honest with yourself, right? Uh, I'd say at Conductor, we now very much do. I'm wearing it on my, on my shirt here. However, for a long time, we didn't have that. You'll, everywhere you'll go, you'll hear about the war on talent, how hard is it to hire great people, how hard is it to keep great people, how expensive great people are. You talk about how do you motivate and inspire millennials. Millennials are beautiful. They, they want to be part of a purpose. They want to be part of something bigger than themselves. Uh, I think having that mission, having that purpose is so paramount to it. David Scott is coming to SAS.18 again this year, featuring in not one, but two sessions. Firstly, a keynote, get inside your buyer's head to improve funnel conversion rates. And then he's moderating a fireside chat with Corey Thomas, CEO of Rapid7, entitled From 15 million to 250 million ARR, scaling with soul. You won't want to miss it. And David doesn't just leave back to Boston on the, on the next flight after his talks. He sticks around for SASDOC 18, meeting with many early stage SAS founders as possible, looking for the next hub spot. Maybe that's you. If you do want to join us at SASDOC 18, grab your ticket online ASAP and you can potentially meet David Scott. It's an incredible opportunity to ask him any questions you have. And if your metrics are shit hot and you're a potential category leader, you never know whether he might be interested to invest. Aside from David, we'll have 300 plus SaaS VCs looking to invest in the next big thing. Connect with them in Dublin this October with the SaaS universe amongst 129 other phenomenal speakers. We're gathering on the 15th to the 17th of October. It's going to be a blast. As a little treat this week, you can use my personal discount code AlexT20 to get a 20% discount code on the remaining tickets. Now on with the show. This is Seth, I'm David, and um, I'm going to ask Seth a few questions, but I really think that part of what we're trying to do here is extract useful insights from Seth that might be helpful to you as you're running your own SaaS businesses. So if any of you have questions that you're just dying to ask, raise your hand and I'll try and spot it and um, let's get your questions thrown in as well. But I think what we need to do to get things kicked off is uh, we, we really need Seth to maybe introduce himself and how he got uh, conductor started, tell you a tiny bit about conductor so you have at least the big picture context before we dive into some of the lessons that might be uh, useful for each of you to know. Awesome. Uh, so, one thank you everyone for being here. Uh, huge thanks to making out the Queens. Uh, this, uh, this event is actually a huge event in Europe and I believe this is the, this is the founding uh, North American. So you guys are all part of the you know, founding group here. Um, I have no doubt that this is going to turn into something amazing, and you know, it's, I, we're appreciative to be a part of it and uh, and grow this into something amazing. I think New York City is a great place to build a, a SaaS community. We're already on the sort of echo chamber of the second and third generation companies, and uh, you guys are showing lots of grit by making it out to Queens uh, from wherever you're coming from. So, uh, awesome for being here. Um, so my name is Seth Bismernick. Uh It's a kind of baffling to be here. Uh, it, it was not very long ago where this guy right here, who is like arguably the number one SaaS investor in the entire world, uh, was just someone who I would read his blog posts and uh, think maybe one day I would get to meet this guy, yet, to yet, yet alone to realize that at some point he would join my board, and then at some point past that we'd be up here talking about the great things we accomplished together. So uh, I think while this is set up for me to do more of the talking, Probably a lot more to learn from, from David over here than, than from myself. 
Um, so conductor, we, um, you know, just a little bit of my background. I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, I went to City College here in New York, uh, started the company pretty much right out of school with, with very little experience. Uh, we actually started our business as a services business, and in doing a services business, we uncovered a very meaningful SaaS opportunity in online marketing, mainly just helping businesses figure out what their customers wanted and how to reposition their content and organize themselves to get found when people look for what they do. Think SEO, content marketing, inbound marketing, content marketing for, uh, for enterprise companies. And we actually ended up selling the service business and then going back to zero and refocusing on a software business. And I think uh, while Conductor has had great success and you know, we ultimately sold the business to WeWork and, and now we're part of building something phenomenal with WeWork uh, and our whole team is really locked in and committed, I, I always tell the CEO of WeWork who in seven, in eight years built the fastest growing, private, the second biggest startup in the whole world, you know, uh, and in my company, in 12 years, I built a, a pretty good company, but not near them. I always tell him that, you know, you might have built a better company, but I, I made way, way many more mistakes than you made in that <laughs> long time. So I think uh, this group could benefit from all the mistakes I made, which were many. Uh, but ultimately, from 2010, when we launched Conductor to this past year, we ended up building a business that was you know, over $30 million in recurring revenue. We overcame lots of challenges, uh, and we actually, are uh, in our best trajectory ever. Our growth rate's accelerating, uh, and business is, uh, is doing really well. So happy, uh, we've gone through challenges around people, leadership, churn, sales execution. I mean, you name it, we've been through it all, and you know, happy, uh, I, I think we can talk a lot about that and, uh, and how, we, uh, how everybody could benefit from it. Great. Well, it, you know, you wrote a blog post on LinkedIn that was titled, um, Never Give Up, The Conductor's Story. And in that, you referred to the struggle, which any of you who've read Ben Horowitz's book, uh, you'll know that he referred to the struggle. How many people in this room here have any kind of experience of what the struggle means and, and might consider themselves to be going through that? All right, so, so Seth is an expert at dealing with the struggle. He has been through serious, serious forms of the struggle. And I think it'd be kind of interesting to, for you to just reflect on what was it that, that helped you get through that? And um, we'll then talk about what were the elements of the struggle that you had to solve as, as well. But Sure. Well, one thing, it, the struggle is, is part of the process. Uh, I think we were fortunate enough to go through the struggle many times because your strength comes from the struggle. I'd recommend having a, a phenomenal wife uh, to help you from, uh, you know, keep your finger away from the, the trigger when you're uh, <laughs> contemplating those things. Um, <laughs> But uh, you know, in our in our business, we we had these consecutive moments of being this close to being out of business. I mean, David can speak, and we can talk about this now that we're uh, we're in the next phase of the business. But there were several moments in our time at, at, where, as board, we were like, okay, we got to sell the company. Okay, how many people are we going to be letting go? Uh, like, we're there was moments where we just thought the business wasn't going to exist anymore, yep. which was baffling because we look around outside of the glass windows in our boardroom and we see everybody and they're smiling and they're doing all their work, but we're in this room and we're like, we're running out of cash. Place, yeah, we have no more money left and yep. no one wants to give us any more money because we used it all up already. Um, so that's okay. You know, it's, I think that the, the biggest thing is um, you're, no matter if you're ambitious and you want to face the world and you want to and you want to live in the world that we're gonna that we're in a be you know gonna be in, you're gonna just get faced with challenge after challenge after challenge. And I think the first step is your mentality and realizing that 
every challenge you get in your life is here for a purpose. It's here to help change you. It's here to help grow you. And it's only there because you're capable of actually overcoming it. So I think that's the starting point of the mentality. We, there's a little sign over my desk and it says never give up. And it has a, a frog in the neck of a, like a pelican. And he's pretty much dead. Um, his whole body is immersed in the neck of the pelican, except his arms are coming out and he's choking it, right? And I think that that embodies our spirit, which was no matter what, we were going to make it work. We made promises to investors to return capital. We made promises to employees to join the company and, and, and take, take a, lower, a lower salary. And we always had that mentality of making it work. And I think that fundamentally, you know, made, made it past it. That being said, having good advice, good board members, there's lots of things that we did, we could talk a little bit about that, that we did to actually fix our problems. Because if you, if you just want to survive, you will survive, but ultimately you want to thrive. And in order to do that, you need to do things differently. Yep. Yeah, and it may be worth talking about some of the biggest um, challenges that you had to overcome. And I, I remember certainly one of them that I'll throw out, but I know you have others as well, was the business had this interesting problem. It, it, it had churn rates that were too high for long-term sustainability. But when you looked under the covers, there was a bunch of customers who loved the product, and then there was a bunch of customers who were churning. Yeah. So talk to us about you know, what do you do when you have that kind of a situation? Because I'm sure many of you have experienced churn, and churn is a factor that you've got to do, deal with to try to improve your business. So it'd be very interesting yeah, to I hear think that. that uh, so that, just going at to a more macro point, um, you guys as, as leaders of companies, whether you're on the executive team, on the board, or the CEO, you know your problems better than anyone. And when you have a problem, you have a few options. You can ignore it. Um, you could fix it indirectly by doing something over here that, that you know, customers don't like the product. Let's throw more services to fix the problem. Um, or you can go right at it. And that's whether that's an employee who you know isn't, isn't meeting expectations or customers aren't using the product or a board member who's not doing his fiduciary duty. You can go right at it. It's easy to either ignore or do the others. And I think in, when I look back at Conductor, we did a lot of the first two, ignoring and not doing, and not, and not, and not uh, or covering it up. And as it relates to churn, um, and, and you, you probably know this, but this is a very real thing. It, it's easy to grow the business in the beginning, go from you know, easier zero to 500K, to three million, to six million, to 12 million. Things look good. But obviously, as those numbers get, biz get bigger, and you, if you have a churn problem, if you're losing 10% of your customers every year, or 20% or 30%, think about that 30% on $20 million is $6 million in new business just to stay flat. And no, flat is not, is not what it's like. If you're 30% on 1 million, that's only you know, 300K, which, is, which you might be able to do that in a quarter. So you have to really, uh, no, a SaaS business isn't really a SaaS business without having good retention. And I think for us, we made a pivot in the company, a, a, a sort of a, a spiritual pivot, a philosophical, a strategic pivot, a pivot, which it actually came right after raising money. We, we, had, we were about 14 or 15 million in revenue, and we had just barely raised money. I mean, David actually thought we weren't, even, weren't gonna pull it off. <laughs> yeah. And in the back of my mind, I thought we weren't gonna pull it off either. We spoke to every firm, and we, we, we got the, literally the last investor, and we did a, we did a $26 million round of early 15. Um, but that moment, and really ha realizing how close we were to not doing it, really got us to change. And that real pivot was from, um, or that sort of, uh, the evolutionary change was from shifting my focus and the whole organization's focus from 
sales, and how many people here have a gong or a bell when they hit it when they close a deal? Anyone want a gong or a bell when they close a deal? Uh, keep the hands up. Anyone have a gong or a bell when they renew a customer or when a customer sell, does something great? I don't even. Less hands. I mean, I'll ask that to groups of people, and the hands go up, and then when I say the second thing, hands go down. Um, it's very easy to sell and brute force your way into a nice $10 million business, uh, and even, even bigger. You can do a lot of that. But ultimately, customer value is the core of everything. What's your NPS? What's your, how, what's your usage? Um, just in your heart, do you feel like customers are consistently getting value from your product? And we just got rid of everything. We've changed all of our metrics and all of our focus, not about sales, and we started focusing on customer value. We built new instrumentation so we can see all the things that customers are doing between when they start and when they renew and get the whole team focused on the early indicators. CFO goes up every month. Before he talks about revenue, he talks about NPS, customer satisfaction, usage, the things that actually drive value. and 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 and. After, it took us about, I'd say, two years to really shake it all out of our system, build the right features for the right things, and actually uh, really focus on our problems where we actually start, start to see a difference in the numbers. So if anyone here is running a company or at a company smaller than that, don't worry, if, uh, don't chase the quarterly number, don't chase the thing you need to do to raise money, play the long game, because all of a sudden the long term becomes now, and you're going to really be thankful that you made those long-term choices. I mean, uh, just to talk more about this, early on, and our head, our head of product, Baruch, is here in the front. This is before he started. We were under a lot of pressure to have an international version of our product. This goes down as probably my top three biggest mistake of my career. Um, and I had two choices. Re-architect our platform and have international be part of the core database, because we design our database flawed, just US-centric. Or, and that was going to take like nine months, six to nine months, maybe, maybe longer, maybe shorter. Or I can do this thing which we call Steam Relief, where we build a separate SQL database, which is where we put all of our global data and US data separately. So every time you build a feature, you sort of have to build it a little bit more so it works off of both databases. So if you can just guess which choice I made. Um, I made the, and, and also I had an inexperienced team with me at the time, which helped, allowed me to make that choice and almost encouraged me to, but I made, the, I made the choice of doing the fast way. And that worked for a little bit, and it, only, it was probably about a year or two later where we started having to say, every new feature was gonna take twice as long if we wanted to make it global. So what did we do? Well, we just made US features. So when we're selling, we're like, well, which features are US and global? We're like, ah, maybe the customer won't ask that. They'll only find out once they become a customer. So you can find out how this thing starts to go. Money's running tight. Got to hit the numbers. Board, wasn't, board isn't sure they sh I should be the CEO. Pressure, pressure, goals, ooh, short term, short term. By the way, the, there, board, the board was always sure you should be the it, CEO. There was, there was, before David joined, there was, there, was, uh, there was other stuff that happened. Um, uh, uh, <laughs> so uh, anyway, you can follow the cycle here, right? Play the long game. Your business, is not, your business doesn't have an expiration date. Your business will last forever. That's how you have to run it. That's how Jeff Bezos runs the company. You're gonna last forever. So play the long game, always make long-term decisions. If you find yourself focused on a short-term goal, I'm gonna sell the company to this company who thinks they're gonna buy it in a year, so we're gonna do this. It's all a trap. And those are the choices where you either fall into the trap and you become a mediocre entrepreneur, or you avoid the trap and you play the long game, and you become a superstar. And you know, learn, 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 you know, learn, learn, for, learn from me. I mean, 12 years to build uh, the company we built is okay, but 
we could have built a much bigger company in a much fat, shorter amount of time if we did things better. Yeah, and there's, and there's a great story in that, which I think is an interesting challenge for many of you, which is in the very early days, it's not a good idea to over-engineer your product because you need speed and rapid turnaround and just building kind of like a prototype that's good enough to get you evidence of product market fit is the right way to go for that speed. But there's an interesting point in time where I think you are faced with the challenge of realizing, oh my god, we, we, we're now starting to put this damn prototype into production all over the place, and that's the wrong thing to do. And we need to actually stop here and pause and invest in rebuilding the platform. So there's, a, there's another lesson that I really think was fascinating that you guys went through, which is your customers um, were getting effectively a, a set of data thrown at them. The product produced a ton of data that told them exactly what was happening with SEO, told them what your competitors were doing, what, what they were doing. And certain customers were very good at dealing with that and understood how to interpret that data. But other customers weren't. Sure. So how did you, how did you go about solving that problem? Because I think ultimately you have cracked that, and it's, a, it's in a way that I believe is highly um, appropriate for every company. Sure. Uh, in our business, and I think other businesses, when you, when you start out, you'll find the, the companies who are most savvy and are most advanced tend to become your customers first. Those are the early adopters. Um, then they tend to give you feedback, which is more sophisticated. They want more advanced things. All, you know, all makes sense. But as you start to want to grow more and you have bigger goals and you want to go from a million dollars to 10 and 10 to 30, the sophistication of the market almost undoubtedly is just going to go down as the market gets bigger. What ends up happening is you're, you're, the voice that's loudest in your ear is those early, very, very you know, savvy customers. So what we found ourselves in was that we had a we were we had a product that was that when we looked at it, it looked nice and easy to use. Why? Because we look at it every day, and we we're, our brain is already instrumented to understand it. And our our, our early customers liked it more because it was advanced. Although we eventually realized those really advanced people are almost impossible to satisfy anyway. And then we found that as we got into the marketplace, the thing that mattered the most was simplicity, easiness, time to value, and the market's just not that very sophisticated. Um, and whether people are, are not intellectually sophisticated or they just don't have time because people are strapped to doing tons of things, they want simple solutions. So I would always advocate towards building a product that's just easier over, over harder, and we, we, that's part of what we did as part of our transformation, but you know, I think it's about, um, you know, when you look at a product, uh, David actually, David actually, I think, um, got me to think about this in a differently. He's like, when, when your sales guy is demoing your product and he's telling you what to look for and what it's supposed to do, it looks amazing. The problem is, is that when the sales guy is not there, it's hard to figure all those things out. So if you could make it so your product actually does what your best salesperson does and says it and articulates it, and that just becomes more obvious without having the salesperson there, then when the salesperson's there, there's more than that person could even do. And ultimately, when your customer is back home at their desk without any of you there, they log into your product, they start using it, you know, they're going to actually know what to do and feel that warm sort of dopamine from being successful versus like, oh my god, this is overwhelming, I need to call someone and get help. Yeah, and, and, and the particular feature that, that ended up emerging from this, I think is just an amazingly obvious feature that can be implemented in so many of your products as well. So what I've heard so many times from customers is, please don't give me more data, because I've got to go and look at that data, and I've got to figure out if there's any insight in that data, and then I've got to figure out what actions to take on it. What they really want from you is insights directly from the product. And what Seth and Baruch did 
was they transformed Conductor by putting in a feed. And the feed was rather like the Facebook feed, where the product was surfacing the insights for you and proactively bringing them to you. So you didn't have to go and look at the data to see that you just slipped uh, in terms of page rank on a crucial page uh, below one of your competitors. And this is what they suggested that you do to actually fix that. So that's a very valuable potential thought for you here is, are you presenting your customers with a really clear set of insights and instructions on what they should do from your product? I thought that was a genius move, and I think it had a huge impact on, on how the, uh, the successes come later on. So I think you've got some, some other really interesting lessons that you've learned that, that if you were one of the entrepreneurs sitting here and, and, and you were in the very early stages of Conductor, that you would have loved somebody to have told you. So there's a few, there's a few of them. Um, um, how many people here uh, feel like their company has a very convicting mission and vision? That, that, and, and largely a mission of what they do. And be honest with yourself, right? Um, so I, I'd say, I'd, you know, I'd see maybe 30% of the hands go up, 20% of the hands. And I think that's a, I, I appreciate all the sincerity in those, the answers. Um, I'd say at Conductor, we now very much do, I'm wearing it on my, on my shirt here. Um, However, for a long time, we didn't have that. And you'll, everywhere you'll go, you'll hear about the war on talent. How hard is it to hire great people? How hard is it to keep great people? How expensive great people are? Um, I mean, all, everything is about people, right? It's, our businesses are a function of the people we have. Um, what the I think the secret to, to, to solving all those problems, beating out Google and Amazon for that next engineer, um, keeping your salaries to be reasonable and, and not sort of at, you know, at hostage of your best employees um, uh, and ultimately retaining and, 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 and not just retaining your workforce, but getting people to be pumped and effective. You know, two great people who are pumped can be better than five great people who are not. And I, I, I think the secret to doing that, and I think WeWork is, is the ultimate sort of manifestation of that because you know, while WeWork today is uh, in, in doing phenomenal. I mean, I was just telling David before, I mean, the company is just doing incredible, and as I'm inside of it, it's a beautiful company. But for many years, WeWork was way ahead of its skis in terms of what it said it did and, and, and its energy versus what it really was. Um, and a lot of that is the company is so centered around its mission and its vision and the difference people have to make. And at Conductor, we always were, um, we always had something like that, but, but not really. And eventually I realized that what we were doing was we were helping companies do marketing in a very different way. And that the marketing that they were doing was actually helping their customers. It was actually doing something better. You know those little answer boxes on Google when you search for something, they show up? Well, we were getting our customers to start to create content and compete on who could help someone the most, which is really fascinating. And what we really, what we really realized we were doing was we were bringing the human spirit to marketing. We were, one, helping human beings grow as marketers and, and, and use their superpowers as humans to do marketing instead of throwing money in the ad management machine and just you know, arbitraging the world. And on the other side, from the customer, we're doing marketing that's helpful and useful and adding value and changing lives and being assistive. And we realized the more successful we were, the more successful, the, wor the better the world really became. Um, and we really got the company organized around a central mission and a vision to make a difference. And that just, that is what people want. You talk about how do you motivate and inspire millennials. Millennials are beautiful. They, they want to be part of a purpose. They want to be part of something bigger than themselves. 
Uh, I think having that mission, having that purpose is so paramount to it. So challenge yourself to have it. I sat with a guy who does subscription di uh, adult diapers the other day, and he said he didn't have a mission and couldn't come up with one. And I was like, think about all the people who, one, are not maybe that excited that that's where they're at in life for whatever, however way they got there, and now they don't have to go to the store. And now they don't have to do this. Now it's just, it's just, it's easy. You're, you're making this part of their life that's less exciting. You're making it better for them. You're making it easier, bringing a little bit of joy there. And there's a big mission in, in I think, doing that because it actually is a huge problem and it's a huge, it's a huge industry. So I think that's, you know, it's easy to laugh at, but I think find your, find your mission. Um, that's one category. I'd say the other thing that I would just recommend is always do the right thing. Um, we made a lot of choices at Conductor that were around doing the right thing from a very human perspective. Uh, giving that extra severance that you didn't have to do, uh, extending someone's options who couldn't write the check, um, always taking the high road when people leave the company and, and, not, and not, uh, you know, not, not taking the joy of saying, you know, not using the sort of energy of like, oh, I fired that guy, I'm a great leader, I'm, I'm holding people accountable, but letting people retain their integrity. But always do, do the right things because this, 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 you know, life is short, but it's also really long. And as I've had the chance to play out some of the cycles here, it's things come back. They come back and they come back and we live in these little circles in this world and everything you do is like a seed that you plant in the ground. And if you do the right things, the seeds will grow and there'll be beautiful flowers that will bring delightful things to your life and maybe miracles. And when you do the wrong things, there are also little seeds that are in the ground as well, but they don't grow into flowers. They grow into sort of uh, devilish energy. And ultimately, when you have a lot of that around you, the world just doesn't work in your favor. The world just gets harder. Good things don't happen. Your company doesn't get bought. Your revenue doesn't get there. Your competitors beat you. All those things happen. So plant lots of seeds that are, are in the human spirit and doing the right thing. Take the long term. Have a good mission. And uh, you know, I'd say one last thing just yep. while, I'm on, while yep. I'm on this rant is your business is a reflection of you. Uh, it's, it is nothing more than a perfect reflection of you uh, as, the, as the leaders of a company. Uh, your team is a reflection of you, your worst employee is a reflection of you, your growth rate is a reflection of you. So how much time are you spending to actually grow yourself? For many years, you know, I only read books and learned about management and business stuff. And it wasn't until I started spending my time learning about how to be a better human, how to have a better relationship with my wife, how to be a better husband, how to be a better father, uh, how to... Um, develop some of the different skills, and as I started to actually grow myself in new ways, it all came together, and the company and the people, everyone started to grow as a function. So establish a practice for yourself to grow. Go to a therapist, go to a spiritual coach, go to work groups, do a lot of reading, do things, do things that embarrass you, do things that are different, and really grow yourself, because your, your growth is really, the, the is really going to be commensurate with your company's growth, and uh, it's really your number one responsibility as a leader to grow. And you'll see magical things that will happen with your team. Your team will grow, your company will grow, and um, you know, that's what I, think, I think that's what life's about. And, and you know, when we were talking about this earlier on, you mentioned that you, you grew a lot in the very early days of the company, and then you plateaued, and then you started to grow again at the end. Anything particular that you did to, to really kick off learning how to grow again at the end, personally? I, I mean, I, I, going back to what I just said, uh, and sorry to keep this so uh, philosophical, but 
I think if I were to map out my own life and say, how did Seth grow? I grew a lot, and then Seth sort of stopped growing. Seth, started, Seth got very uh, unhappy with his lack of progress due to him not growing. And in the face of that, Seth decided to really uh, grow a lot more as a human, and that ended up having that happen. So I think for me, the things that helped me grow were um, understanding more about myself, understanding why I make decisions, understanding what, like, it's okay, I, I, it's easy to, to just say, okay, I'm not gonna avoid my problems and I'm gonna fix my churn and I'm not gonna ignore it, but why, do you, why is that in your nature to wanna avoid something? Learn that. Until you understand why, you can't actually overcome that. So I think a lot of it was that, and I'd say just to get more practical, focus on value. Um, as it relates to your leadership, it's the hardest part. I mean, most of the time you look at these SaaS companies and by the time they go public, they've had four, four different sets of executives. That doesn't mean that people have to leave. If you're growing fast enough, you can move people around. But when you, when, you know, I'd say my, I said the top three biggest mistakes. One was that architecture one. The other two mistakes are all around people. Knowing in your gut that someone's not the right person, knowing in your right gut someone shouldn't be in that role anymore, hiring someone when you don't feel like they're the right fit, and just not listening to that voice. And if you just listen to yourself, your, your body knows more than what, knows exactly what to do. And just connect with it, listen, trust it, have certainty, and you'll see um, yes, it's and actually simple when you do that. Yeah, yeah. So I see we David too, if he's on your board. <laughs> <laughs> I see you've got some, some great questions here. So one of them that um, is on here is, do you wish you had sold earlier in the journey? No, I mean, I, I, you know, we weren't selling the company and actually Conductor was, uh, was doing better than ever before. And, you know, I have phenomenal investors, but half the investors didn't want to sell the company and it was very difficult to actually do. Um, I would have only sold the company to WeWork. And that's just where we were at because we had this chance that we were creating value so fast at, by the time we sold. WeWork is just a beautiful organization and they truly want to change the world and they want to bring more humanity to humans. And we had a chance to be a part of this. And a company that I was just telling my wife on the way here, like I think we literally could be the biggest company in the whole world and also do that while having a massive positive impact to the whole ecosystem. I know the founder of WeWork and um, I know that in the, you know, he's not working for money, he's working for change and to bring peace in the world. So to me, I, this was the only thing that happened. I'm so happy I didn't sell earlier because we had chances to do that because it would have it precluded us from doing this. And when this came around, I mean, it was, um, when, you, when you have the right thing, you know it's the right thing and you, know, you just go for it. Yeah, yeah. So next question I see here is you mentioned the database thing as a top three mistake. What's another top mistake you made and how would you handle that today? And, and maybe I can prompt you on something which sure. I think is important. Yeah. Tell us about your management team and what you learned about team building, management team building. Yeah, well, the, the, I think the thing on the management team is, um, one, it's, it, it's, it's helping, it's making sure your team is keeping up. And I think for a long time I, I had a team that you know, you go into a one-on-one -on -one and you're, you don't want to push too much on a person because you already feel like they're over their head. And when you're working with the right people, and, and that's a good indicator generally that someone is, is maybe having some struggle, that doesn't mean they need to be replaced, but that's the beginning of the, the, of the thinking for that, that your team is there to, to lift you up and prop you up and, and, and ultimately give, give you leverage. As a CEO, you should be thinking about the future, you should be thinking strategic things. So, 
as it relates to your team, it's, um, it's, it's, it's having those conversations earlier when things seem to be potentially getting str struggling. Uh, it's not waiting until they become out of your control. It's having those direct conversations and, and, and setting expectations and, and also offering help and assistance and mentorship as much as you can. Um, it's trusting yourself and that even though you probably have a lot less experience than the people who work on your team, you still represent something that's really meaningful and you could be a good manager and you could be a good leader for that person. Um, and, and I'd say lastly, I'd say as it relates to executives, it's not about the individual. It's about the team. It's about finding people who are transparent and collaborative. Um, I wrote a post actually called the Full Stack Executive and I think we have copies of it uh, somewhere around here. Um, they're, they're in a stack, but I, we, wrote, we wrote four blog posts around our culture and people and the Full Stack Executive is the, is the ideology of a person who is very collaborative and open to improving. Um, and I think that's, that's a big thing. Great. Well, sadly, I see that we're actually over time, so we've been lucky that uh, we haven't been booted off the stage yet, but, but very much appreciate you, you coming up and, and helping everybody here with, with the insights and wish you the best in this next phase of the journey. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the SaaS Revolution Show and have picked up valuable lessons from Seth Besmertnik and David Scott, and they are better equipped to face the inevitable challenges you'll come across in building your SaaS. Thanks for listening. See you next time. And hopefully at SaaS.18 as well, we'll get to meet. Use code AlexT20 if you want to save 20% on your SaaS.18 tickets at SaaS.com. And hopefully see you in October.